we are capable of so much more than we know. We put limiters on our lives, on what's possible over and over and over. So the real mission is first to A, recognize that, and then B, decide what it is we are going to do about it. And that is the message from my dear friend, Stephen Kotler's new book, The Art of Impossible. Now, you may be familiar with Stephen because he's A, been on the show before, and B, is a crazy smart person around creativity and how to get in flow states. So if you're familiar with his work, this is going to be a treat. He's got an amazing class on Creative Live for what it's worth. Again, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, Kotler, K-O-T-L-E-R. And today we're talking about decoding what have historically been thought of as secrets around the world's most elite performers, athletes, artists, scientists, CEOs, and more. And these are all people who have defined or changed the definition of what is possible for their one precious life. And this is available to you. This is a mix of some things that you can do, actions you can take, and ways to think, how to uh, explore your areas of curiosity, specifically the how-tos, the what to do to uncork or unravel or peel the onion or however you want to think about it, those things that are near to you. And I know this is this is this is a huge blocker for so many of you listening and watching right now. And it's for that reason that you are going to love today's show. Again, if you're not familiar with Stephen, he's one of the world's leading experts on peak performance, um, an award-winning journalist and author of like I think 12 books. Uh, including a bunch of national bestsellers. Uh, he's been nominated for two Pulitzers. It's been translated into more than 40 languages. Um, this is going to be a great show for you. I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy this conversation with Mr. Stephen Kotler, and we're going to explore what is possible for you, uh, or rather what is impossible and how you can achieve it. Hey, this episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. And you're like, isn't that the platform that you uh, are the founder and CEO of? Yes, it's true. I am the founder of Creative Live, and they are the underwriter for the show. But it, it goes beyond that. This is not about a transaction. You know that I believe so deeply in the power of creativity to affect change, to get us unstuck, and to uh, unlock the the things, the beliefs, the dreams that we have for this one precious life. And there is no better way of doing that than learning from the world's top creators and entrepreneurs. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, this is where the best teachers in the world teach photography, video, art, design, music, audio, business, and ultimately the ability to make a living and a life in any or all of those disciplines in a way that you want to. And the best way to do that bar none is through the creator patch, which is the subscription that we have unlocked now at creative live it used to be like a hundred bucks for a class. Now for a hundred and change, you can unlock thousands of classes, tens of thousands of hours from the world's top creators. So where do you go to get the best price on that? That is creativelive.com slash creator pass all one word. Best price is there. I wanted to say thank you in advance. If you already have the pass, cool. Give me a shout out. I will give you a high five on social. And if you don't, now is a great time to pick it up. Steven, what's up, man? Nice to have you back on the show. Chase, it's great to be with you. How are you? Legend. Congratulations on uh, your 
pub week. This is huge, man. This is huge. Congrats on the book. And I'm, uh, I'm overjoyed to read your new work and happy to have you on the show. It's good to be with you. It's good to see you. It's been a yeah. couple of years. I would it's- like to get it on the hill sooner rather than later. You remember that you used to ride those things that went downhill. You, I know it was a long time ago and the memory is faint, but. It's true. Well, you were just uh, calling out my surf ranch hat. So uh, maybe one of these days we'll be able to get you out to surf ranch. Yes, please. Uh-huh. You think? Dagger. You're so mean. Dagger. Uh-huh. Well, again, we've uh-huh. got folks coming in from all over the world. Uh, we've got London in the house. Romania just showed up. Uh, Esparto, California, uh, so many folks, Canada, Alberta, we've got, uh, Northern Ireland. That's cool. What, I don't know what time it is there. South America. I need more specific Argentina. Okay. Um, so to say we have a global audience would be, um, an understatement, but one of the reasons that they're here is because we want to know how to be the best versions of ourselves. And if I know anything about you and your work, which I feel like I know a lot, that has been, this book is the culmination of decades worth of research and time spent. And so I want you to start out with what's the premise of this latest uh, pile of research and the thesis that the impossible is now possible. I, I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> he pauses. The, 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 at the heart of the art impossible is, is a number of simple ideas. When we say peak human performance, we mean nothing more, or I guess less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And it turns out that biology is, a, it's a limited tool set. It's a bunch of stuff that's going on, a bunch of different things we have to train and learn how to do and whatever, but it's the same for everybody because it was created by evolution. It's, it's foundational. And, um, the tools for peak performance are hardwired into all of us. So there's, there's these assumptions that peak performance is something that's it's reserved for elite athletes or geniuses or whatever. And it turns out, no, it's just, we all share the same biology. If you can use, learn to make, use your biology to get it to work for you in, in a certain sequence, in a certain order, the way it was designed by evolution to work, you end up going farther, fast with a lot less fuss. In other words, we're all biologically designed to go big. That's what the system is built for. And we neuroscience has finally advanced to the point that we're like, oh, wow, here's the blueprint. Here's the formula. And this is relatively recent, right? A bunch of people have been looking at large portions of the formula. It's great books on, on focus or on flow or on gratitude or on motivation or on gra- all the pieces. But what we now have learned over the past couple of years, is they all fit together in a very particular way. And if you get the system working the way it was designed to work, you get to go big. Simple version. Yeah, no, but that is the thesis I think is so important because there, again, there are people tuning in from all over the world. And I don't know anyone who walks around thinking that I don't want to be the best version of myself. And so if we can abstract, you know, one level from that and say, okay, let's assume that everyone wants to be the best versions of themselves, then we have to find a way to get away from just like productivity hacks or just motivation Mm -hmm. or any of those five sort of elements that you, that you talked about these key intrinsic drivers, which is a key piece of the book. You can see all my little uh, dog ears there. And it seems like 
again, if you go back at this abstracted level that everybody wants to be their best, what is ambiguous is the how. And my understanding is, you know, that this is what you've ultimately tried to code. Let me, let me, well, let, let's talk it through in the, in the sort of, I started studying those moments in time when the impossible came possible, right? I started doing this in action adventure sports, which is how you and I have a connection, but I did this in business, in technology, in, in science, in whatever. And that's what you would call capital I impossible, right? Doing that, which has never been done. And so the book is lessons learned for people who've accomplished capital I impossible. It's meant to be used by anybody interested in what I call lowercase i impossible or small i impossible. Lowercase i impossible is all those things that you think are impossible for you, right? This is stuff that's, you know, I wish I could do it, but I'm not, I'm not built that way kind of thing. Um, when I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, I wanted to be a writer. Cleveland, Ohio was a blue collar steel mill town in the 1970s. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you became a writer. There was no internet. There were no books on this stuff. It was, uh, there was no clear path between where I was and where I was desperate to go. And statistically, lousy odds of success, right? That is a small lie impossible. So is rising out of trauma, getting paid for what you love, being a successful creative of any kind, being a successful entrepreneur, getting, uh, becoming world-class at anything you do, etc. Um, those are small I impossibles. And it turns out, because it's just your biology and it's just getting your biology to work for you rather than against you, all the shit you need to go after capital I impossible, turns out it's the same for small I impossible. But hold on one second. If what you're actually just, you're like, dude, small I impossible. Okay, we can get there, but I am just trying to freaking survive Monday. Like I need to be more productive next Monday. Well, guess what? The biology is the same because it's the only toolkit you've got. So whatever level you want to play at, if your premise is correct, that everybody listening to this wants to be better than they are, then this is the toolkit. And what's, as you pointed out, what's breakthrough, what's super exciting is that neurobiology over the past five to 10 years has said, oh, we, we've, we've seen, not only have we seen all the parts, we are starting to see how the parts work together. And that seems to be the, one of the bigger deals here. This is this your statement there absolutely 100% parallels the thesis behind this platform, behind Creative Live, behind my work. And we're using, uh, uh, I use the word creativity, like the foundation. If you want to create the life, life, life doesn't happen. Life is created. We're dealt a set of cards and we have to create the best outcome with the set of cards that we have. And that takes work and effort and understanding and insight and trial and error and to me, this is this is why I've always loved your work is because it's the perfect it's the perfect parallel and also and required to achieve the thing that I'm talking about and have been in this community of creators, entrepreneurs and small businesses that are watching today is that this is the how to control your biology to allow you to do the work that you need to do to create the thing. And so let's start at the start. You said you you're, you've you're starting to understand not just the biochemistry because we've already understood what sort of uh, what role dopamine say plays in the equation. But for those who are new to your work, maybe new to this uh, as a concept, talk to us about the ingredients and then let's shift into talking about how these things work together, which is the essence of your book. And again, we're live today. So if you're just now joining us, welcome. I'm Chase. Uh, founder CEO of Creative Life here with my dear friend Stephen Kotler, um, the 
I would say the foremost leader in the psychology, the neurochemistry, and the um, the ability to put these Lego bricks together for the peak performance that we know you're possible, you are uh, capable of doing. And his new book, The Art of Impossible. So go back to my question there, Stephen. Take it away. So when you say peak performance, when we say, hey, there's a limited set of cognitive tools, right? We're mostly focusing on cognitive peak performance. There's some stuff in the book that focuses on physiology. Like if you want to perform at your best, you got to sleep seven, eight hours a night. And you know what I like that kind of stuff, really basic, but you know, and you know, I, I break down the reasons why, but whatever. Um, these are mostly cognitive tools. And the way I like to explain it is so I'm going to use words like motivation and learning and, and a couple other things, but you should understand that when I say motivation, for example, this is a catch-all term. When psychologists say motivation, they mean extrinsic motivation, things we want in the real world, money, sex, fame, intrinsic motivation, things like passion, purpose, autonomy, mastery, goals, and grit. So their motivation is a placeholder for a set of skills. So when you talk about peak performance, Conversation has to start with motivations, where the conversation starts, because it's the energy that gets you into the game, right? Learning, and I, by learning, I mean a whole subset of skills that would fall under that heading, is what keeps you there. Creativity, as you just so eloquently pointed out, if you're specifically going after high, hard, quasi-impossible goals, it's how you steer. And then flow, which is the optimal state of consciousness that we're all hardwired to produce, um, is how you turbo boost everything kind of beyond all reasonable expectations. That's the full suite. And flow gets you into the game, or excuse me, motivation gets you into the game, learning keeps you in the game, creativity allows you to steer, flow lets you turboose the whole thing. Um, that's everything we're talking about. And when you talk about an order, it's we evolved in a certain way in a certain environment. So these skills came online and were linked together biologically in certain ways. This is not saying that like, if you're great at motive, you know, if you're great at learning skills and don't have motivation, you have, you can't be a peak. People do this in their own way in every other direction. It's just that if you do it the way the system was designed to work, it just works more efficiently with a lot less mess, like any system, right? You can use a vacuum cleaner as a hammer. Absolutely but it's not going to be good for the vacuum cleaner, right? And there's a more efficient way to, to pound in a nail. Um, you can use a system and get successful results, you know, not using it, not the way it's designed to use, but if you use it correctly, it's just going to work better. Better. It's just going to work better. Okay. I want to be better. I want my stuff to work better. Let's take it from 30,000 feet to the person right now who's sitting in that same steel town you were and has a desire to, as you said, maybe not uh, win the NBA dunk contest or not, you know, hurl themselves out of a, a hot air balloon that's 35 miles above the surface of the earth, but wants to get their business off the ground, wants to transition out of a life that they're currently living to something new. What's square one? Um, it's a great question. And it's what the science shows is, fortunately or unfortunately, it starts outside ourselves. It starts in the extrinsic world. We need enough money to pay our bills with a little leftover discretionary income. And the reason is this, if you don't know, if you can't, where's my rent coming from? Where's my food coming from? How do I take care of my needs, my family's needs? If you're up against that stuff, your sister is producing so much anxiety and anxiety blocks performance so significantly 
what the research consistently shows is solve that problem first. Solve that problem first. Make like whatever it is, solve it in a way so you, basic needs are met. And it's really interesting. Daniel Kahneman did this original research, right? And the, the split for single families is at $75,000 a year. So like 10 years ago, he found that like if a husband who had a wife and a child was making $75,000 a year, that was enough to pay all the bills, cover expenses and have a little leftovers discretionary that this starts to work. So what's the example for an individual? I, everybody's got their threshold but, and it depends on where you live and what you're doing, et cetera. So we're not going to go there, but it starts with the extrinsic one. And once that box is checked um, and remember, this is a pay your bills, a little leftover for discretionary. I am not saying you have to get rich to start. I'm saying like, literally, like if you can get a little above minimum wage, you're probably, you're probably okay to get going on this stuff. Then you got to turn to intrinsic motivators, right? What the research shows is certainly we don't stop wanting money, sex, and fame, right? After we get, you know, just basic income. But from a performance perspective, money, sex, fame are not the, the motivators you want to reach for then. Then you want to reach for intrinsic motivators. And what the research shows is there are, big, there are five. There are five that are the big, there are tons more, right? We could spend the next four hours listing all the shit that motivates us. But there are five big ones on an internal level. Curiosity is the most basic foundational human motivator. And we'll talk about what that even means in a second. But curiosity is designed biologically to be built into passion. When we say passion, what do we really mean? We mean the intersection of multiple curiosities plus dopamines you get from little wins playing at that intersection of those multiple curiosities. That's how you build passion. Once you have passion, the system wants you to have purpose, right? It wants you to align that passion to a cause greater than yourself. Basically, the idea is at the level of passion, your biology says, oh, you've got passion now. You're getting enough resources for yourself. Now is the time to get more resources for your tribe, your species, your family, people outside yourself. Thus, the motivator gets linked to purpose. Once you have purpose, what does the system want? Autonomy, the freedom to pursue your purpose. And once you have that freedom, the system demands mastery, which are the skills to pursue that purpose well. This is not to say that you can't start working on mastery before you cultivate curiosity, passion, or, you know what I mean? But if you do it in this order, you get the best results because this is the, how the system was evolved to, to sort of work. And um, by the way, for anybody listening, how do you do all everything I just said? Yeah, you can go to the Art and Boswell, and you should go to the Art and Boswell. But if you go to www.passionrecipe.com, there is a we took basically the first three chapters of the book, turned it into an interactive workbook. Because so many people are like, I want passion. How do I get passion? I want purpose. How do I get purpose? Well, here, there's a biological formula. And we built an interactive worksheet, gave you a tutorial. It's yours for say, go crazy. Say, say the URL again, and we'll have our crew put it in the comments. Passionrecipe.com. www.passionrecipe.com. Um, so, uh, that's just how to do it so we don't have to linger too long. But let's just for a second back up because there's so much like, you know this as well as I do, Chase. I'm sure you see this a lot. Passion and purpose, these, these terms get mystified in today's world. And from a performance standpoint, there's nothing really going, mystical going on. Why does passion matter? We pay more attention to those things we believe in. It happens automatically. Think about the your last romantic partner, when you were falling in love, how you couldn't stop thinking about them or looking at them. Did you expend a lot of energy to do that? 
or did it just happen naturally without you having to do any work? That's why passion matters. Purpose actually gets more of our attention and we actually get more feel good reward chemistry from it. Same thing with autonomy, same thing with mastery. This stuff feels really, really good when it happens. And because it feels really, really good, we're much more motivated and we get focused for free. That's the big, that's all we're talking about here. There's nothing super mystical going on. I'm not saying that purpose isn't good for the world, that there's an altruistic or possibly even a spiritual quality to purpose. But I'm saying from a peak performance perspective, it's entirely selfish. It means more reward neurochemistry for you so you feel better and more focus for free so you do less work. Focus for free. When I survey the landscape of my past and the landscape of people who are in this community, I feel like there's that is a huge disconnect for um, for most people. You look at someone like, oh my gosh, how did this person do it? Where did the motivation come from? Where did they got knocked down so many times? And I find at my at my job when my boss is mean to me or when I miss a deadline or whatever, I, I feel like I'm back to square zero. And I think that that really does get at the core, you know, just sharing that URL that you did, the passion recipe, because they're, those people have tapped into something different. And there are so many people. I think that going from zero to one is so hard because we're not in a culture that sets up to reward it for that exploration and that, that curiosity. And this is why. Well, the, back, the other, the other thing, Chase, is this, I mean, the passion recipe for everybody should be warned. A couple things. Two things. One, you have an idea in your head, I would guess, most of us do, of what passion looks like in the real world. Like if I say, Chase, give me an example of athletic passion. You're going to give me LeBron James windmilling in for a dunk in the finals. And that is passion. You are totally right. But that is late stage passion. That is passion that has been developed over decades and decades and decades of passion on the front end doesn't look and more importantly, doesn't feel like that. So if you go in expecting to feel like you think LeBron feels going in for a windmill dunk, you're a, you're mistaken. It doesn't feel that way. And B, you're going to constantly be let down. Like you were talking about your community being frustrated, going zero to one. A lot of people have problems going zero to one, not because they're doing anything wrong. You're actually cultivating curiosity and you're going through. The other thing is this, it takes a while, like, and it should take a while. You don't want to be two years into your passion and discover, oh shit, it was only a phase. You know, turns out I don't actually want to spend the next five years in Egypt on a dig in the desert in the sand because I don't want to be an archaeologist. I was wrong, right? Like you don't want to do that. It's super demotivating. Like it fucks you up later on, pardon my language, going forward. You really don't want to do it. You want to get it right the first time. So it's a slow onboarding process that can take a few months because you have to learn how to grow passion, you know, grow curiosity into passion. So it starts to feel like you want it to feel. Um, and the second thing that you pointed out, I want to mention this. Most entrepreneurs have end to one as a problem um, because they don't know what they're passionate about. They can't get there. And then the, there's a second problem that comes in right after that, right? You have the intrinsic motivators that get set up. Then there's three tiers of goal setting that we tend to need. And then, by the way, the system will start producing more flow, which is a good thing because then you have to start training grit because grit is exactly the thing you need once, pa like passion, purpose, 
people think it's a panic. This is the other piece of people reason people get delayed end to one and why, or zero to one and why I'm bringing it up here. They think just because you have passion or purpose, it's easier. It doesn't feel bad. None of those things are true. In fact, I will tell you that every peak performer you'll ever meet will tell you the experience that there's going to come a point when your passion, your purpose becomes your prison. And that is the worst spot to be in. And it's just, it's everybody goes through it. It's going to happen, right? You can't do this work without finding yourself in a prison of your own devising at some point. And you think not having passion is a problem. Wait till you're in a prison built by your passion, right? Wait till you have it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Be careful what you wish for people. Um, but, uh, you know, it, uh, it's just there are lots of complications along the way, but the system is designed to handle it, which is the good news. We're all built to handle it, but it's not going to feel great all every time, even with passion and purpose. This intersection of passion and purpose, I think, is obviously, you know, that's key to uh, you talked about curiosity and autonomy and things that are greater than you. But there's as soon as we realize we've got something right let's just say you've experimented and you don't have to have everything it doesn't it you know your life person purpose does not come to you in an email with a subject line that says life's purpose so there this is a very active and wait 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 she said was my experience i mean i didn't know and then somebody sent me an email that's not everybody's experience my bad. Oh, yeah no it's true it's like it doesn't come in an email or someone doesn't show True up at your that. door and hand, hand you an envelope. So there's this process of discovery and part of discovery, as you talked about, is curiosity, this in, intertwining thing. And this idea that you have to know the entire staircase before you begin is another place where people absolutely struggle. This is about skill acquisition. It's about tapping something that is interesting to you. And if it if you follow it and it leads to a dead end, great. The chances are, though, that dead end, you don't have to backtrack very far to find the next leg, the next trail if, you, if you've gone off trail. And that is, to me, what brings in a key piece of this book, which is the learning. Like y once you tap into a thing, then you, you are in this world of my light bulb went on when I realized that when I'm curious about photography, for example, and I had uh, whatever, 15 plus years of of learning experience in a in a box on a hill, going to school, getting tested and doing all the things we do in school. And then as soon as I tapped into photography, this idea of learning had a completely different view. I had a completely different view on it. It was like, no, I had to learn to see if this was a thing. And if I did this thing, did that bring me joy? How did I feel inside? And And so learning shifted from a thing that other people were making me do to jump through some hoop for them to a thing that could potentially unlock. And I say potentially because we may hit some dead ends, but you have to engage your active faculties towards skill acquisition. No, I'm, so la I, I'm laughing because I remember I'd been writing every day since I was like, I don't know, young. And by, I got to college and I remember somebody was like, are you going to major in creative writing? And I was like, wait a minute, this is something I have to go learn. Like, I've been, haven't I been like learning all like what, like I, it was, I, cause I couldn't, it didn't equate what I was doing, which was learning the craft of writing with actual learning until somebody pointed out that, that, Hey, there are classes for this. And I was like, Holy crap. That's what I've been doing this whole time. 
Oh, okay. You call that learning. Cool. Because I thought learning was what you did in school and it felt really different. Absolutely true. Right? The same, I, I, my story is similar. I was doing the going, I'm going to go to medical school because that was something that was revered in our culture. And then partway through, I was just reading all these novels and you know philosophy and getting so inspired and in touch with the things that were going on in my heart. And then someone said like, well, yeah, are you getting a, photographer, a philosophy degree? And I was like, they have degrees in this stuff. You mean I can I, read the same thing I'm reading? And literally, it was like I can read the same shit I'm reading. And so there's this world over here that is just like I am yeah. bulldozing a you know a field that goes on forever. And I, I look up and I'm seems like I'm further back than when I started. And then there's this other path where I can do the things that I want. And when you think about learning the things necessary to be great. And you can apply yourself in either direction. Why would you ever plow someone else's <laughs> field to, to invoke a funny <laughs> euphemism there? But when you can just go to your universe, study creative writing, the thing that you're doing anyway, and get better at it when you've got all this intrinsic, you know, see earlier points motivation. So let's let's land this in, a, a, which is one of the key cornerstones in your book around learning. Give us some advice on learning. Okay, don't. Okay, um, I'm going to talk about two things. The first is uh, this is something we, we we spend a bunch of time on in the book. But I say that you know there are preconditions. If you look at peak performance, you look at how they approach learning. A bunch of skills there. What are the skills that get you into the game? Well, what do we know? We know you sort of, you got to have a growth mindset and an internal locus of control. That means you feel like you're in control of your life because if you don't, you literally, the brain can't learn. So one, you got to start there. That's just obvious. Next step, you need what I call the term I use is truth filters, which is your, how do you assess what you're learning quickly? Is it real? Is it not? You right? you want to learn from the, the best materials you want to, and if you're learning anything difficult, Right. Skill acquisition is one thing, right? Because you can see, oh, he plays the guitar. It sounds like the guitar. That's real. But if it's knowledge acquisition and you're especially if you're playing at the cutting edges of things, how do you know what's real and what's not? Because there's a lot of both. And what where the gray area is, there's opportunity, there's exploration, there's a lot of stuff there, but you need to know. Truth filters. I learned how to, you know, do the reporters do it a specific way. You know, if you can get five outside, so in my experience, if you can get five outside sources to validate a fact, you can trust the fact. Scientific method is another way of doing this. Elon Musk has been advocating for first principle thinking. Doesn't matter. Make up your own. Doesn't matter. The point is you got to know how do I quickly evaluate information for its quality? That's one thing. So when you think about learning, there's a process and there's some meta skills, this being one of them associated with it. And then the thing I really want to talk about is in the book, I break down what I call the five not so easy steps for learning anything. The only thing I want to point out is because it ties in so much with what you said about intrinsic motivation. The five for step one is basically what I call the five books is stupid. And it's, if it's a way to kind of get yourself familiar enough with the subject that you can start asking smart people, experts in the subject, good questions about it. Because if you're going to go to all the trouble of getting in the room with an expert in the thing you want to learn, you don't want to ask them anything you can look up. You're wasting their time. They know it, and they're going to give you less time, first of all. And you know it. You could, you could have got it elsewhere, right? You want to like get to the point that you could actually leverage expertise. How do you do it? 
it's a process for reading. The thing that I want to point out here is when people try to learn and read, they make a very bad mistake. They, they learned in school that you have to learn in a specific certain way and that is effective if you're taking tests. But if you're trying to learn for yourself, you literally want to follow your curiosity through a subject. Why? Because every time you feel curiosity, every time your brain goes, wow, that's weird. Take a note, right? That's the stuff to remember. That's the stuff you really want to focus on because when you're curious, the brain has a neurobiological reaction that literally primes it for learning. So you are, when you're curious, that's your brain way of saying, I am now primed for learning. I'm going to make it really freaking easy for you. And all you got to do is take a note about this thing that, and just write your question or blah, blah, blah. You want to follow your curiosity through subjects. There's a couple other things that are worth paying attention to. I, I, what I tell people is, if you follow your, if you look at your brain, two things to know. One is that your brain loves narrative. So pay attention to the history of a subject. Because if you can sort of put, start putting a timeline together, right? Oh, this happened first, this happened second, this happened third. And remember, whatever subject you want to learn, however fancy it is, it's just a voyage of curiosity. Some dude had a question. Some dude answered that question. It led to another question. It led to another question and so forth. That's all you're learning. A bunch of people like questions. People answered it. It's a narrative. It happened in an order. And since the brain, we have narrative storytelling machines for brains. Brain loves cause and effect. Wants to know what happened first. What did it lead to? So I can write. That's what brains do all the time. Um, and which is why we love narrative, why we love story, all that stuff. So pay a little bit of attention to the history of a subject. Because it gives you, it gives your brain this macro. It's like the it get you get the Christmas tree. All the facts you're going to learn are the ornaments. But if you give your brain the basic Christmas tree, it's going to do what it does naturally, which is put things in an order and turn them into a story um, without you having to do the work. You just have to pay a little bit of attention there. The next thing you want to pay attention to is, and I always is the vocabulary of a subject. And I always say, if you encounter a word while trying to learn something that you don't recognize, ignore it. If it shows up five times in one thing, look it up. And every time you see it from that point on, say the definition aloud, aloud until you're, it's locked in. And the reason you want to pay attention to the terminology, jargon and terminology is annoying. It's pretentious. It's all those things. It, 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 it's difficult. But when what you learn after you've learned a bunch of subjects is that oftentimes most of the subject is contained within the terminology. The terminology are like homo sapiens. You could just say humans, but homo sapiens gives you the genus, the species, and if you translate it, wise ape, the idea that we thought we were smarter than other hominids, whether or not it's true, right? Like you get a whole bunch of shit packed into one term. It means a lot of stuff. A lot of subjects are hidden inside the terminology. So pay attention to the terminology, pay attention to the history a little bit, really pay attention to what I call the emotional wows. The point that your brain goes, whoa, what the hell is this? And it starts automatically doing those connections. Oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? That's what you take notes on. That's what you pay attention to. You follow your emotional wow moments through subjects and learning becomes, as you said, delightful and doesn't feel like learning. This, I need to be clear to everyone who's watching and listening right now. What you're hearing Stephen talk about is what I believe is the potentially the most misunderstood thing in our culture from getting people from where they are right now to where they want to be. And it is following your curiosity because let's extract this for a second and say, 
when you when you want to be your best and what Stephen's saying here and I agree with is that you right now today who you are can be world class at something if you find the thing that actually makes your heart sing because you it's like a tractor beam it starts pulling you rather than you pushing all of the rocks up hills with you and the the thing that Stephen is talking about in in finding a way to to explore your curiosity you're using reading the same thing could be true for youtube videos it can be true yeah. for you know attending conferences it can be true for so many things but if you're if something like gives you a buzz and you are you can latch on to that information and pull from one thread swing from one vine to the other like this is the key to becoming world class and i would argue to unlocking the potential that exists in you right now today the potential now maybe you know you're not going to if you maybe you're not going to play in the nba or maybe you're not going to uh, discover the 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 right set of fuel to propel the rocket to the outer limits of the solar system but there are 10 other things that you are in love with in here somewhere that you have aptitude for that if you decide to pull on those strings, you will be so much further along than the things that you're doing right now. And learning, learning how to do that, essentially just following your curiosity and trusting that if you jump from one page of a book to a YouTube video to all these other different aspects that you're actually, that's doing it right. And no one is saying that out there in the world. So pay uh, yeah, attention. I want to I want I want to talk about the thing that you just said also cuz it's really worth drilling into one extra second cuz not a lot of people say it out loud. Um what we're not saying is you don't genetics early childhood experience like if you're 5'4 you're probably not going to play in the NBA. You could be Muggsy Bowes. You could be Muggsy Bowes. That like there are random outliers, right? Um, and I don't want to poo-poo anybody's dream of trying, but what both of us are in absolute agreement on is everybody is great at something. The way I, the way I always put it is I have been around the world. I've met so many goddamn people. It's ridiculous as a journalist as and everything else. I've never met I've, or very rarely meet dumb people. I don't do it. What I have discovered is if you can figure out what language somebody speaks and what they're passionate about, everybody's smart about something. So you figure out what that is and you try to learn from them about that thing. That's what I did as a journalist. That's sort of what I've done as everything. But like, I, you know, I spent my career finding excellence in peculiar corners. And that's what it always looks like. There's something else I want to say. This isn't really an art and possible, but in talking about it a lot, um, it's come up a lot and it's very closely related to what you're saying. Cause I think there's a mistaken conception out there in popular culture about going after your dreams or all this stuff, which is a lot of people are now I'm hearing a lot like, Oh, I'm really broken. I've got trauma. I've got this and that. I can't, I got to fix me before I can start going after my dreams. I hear that a lot. And I want to point out that every single successful person I've ever met in the world is running from something just as fast as they're running towards something and the process of like running away from whatever they, you know, want, you need both motivations to get where you're going. So if you're starting from broken, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. 
Like that's where it always starts. That's the only place it can start. So don't say, you know, what I'm hoping we're, we're doing, if we're doing anything here is we're removing your excuses for going after what you want. This yeah. is hopefully what we're doing. No, it's true. But there's also like this idea of how I, I'm just tracing uh, my experiences talking to hundreds of people on this show, the hundreds of world's top creators and entrepreneurs who like yourself have classes on creative live. This is an absolutely common thing that continues to be buried in our culture, not because it's a mystery or because people don't don't talk about it because it's just not that sexy, like how you swing from one vine to the next in your, in your, in your- <laughs> I'm laughing. I have to interrupt you. I have to interrupt you because I have, I've said you, this is all over the place at this point. I keep saying, I so said the biggest problem with all the work I do is nothing I do. If you apply it in your life and then talk about it at a bar on Friday night is going to get you laid. It's not sexy. It's just, that's the big, one of the biggest problems. Everybody wants something whiz bang or sexy or whatever and fine. But what works is really simple and foundational and psychological and physiological in really basic ways. Because we evolved in an environment that was millions of years old. It was a very different environment. It was a lot simpler. I'm going to paint a little picture just to endorse your point here. I'm in the middle of learning something new and it's an exciting new area of opportunity for Creative Live and uh, and it, it gives me a lot of energy to think about it. And I'm just going to give you a picture of my Sunday. So I sat at that coffee table back there and on the, t- on the coffee table, I had my laptop open. I had my phone going. I had two books on the table and w- two hardback books on the table and one on my Kindle. And I literally was bouncing back and forth between all of these things. When one would point to another, I would look it up. I would watch that video. That video would then point me to another author. I would go on my Kindle. I would buy that book. I would open that book. I mean, and is this efficient? Is this, is this a laser like focus? No, but that's actually not the objective when you're trying to take an idea of a concept and figure out where do I focus my attention right now? I'm in like, what are the important things and where, how can I corroborate five different points of view? How can I find what's important and what's not? How do I learn the vocabulary? And this is an area that's interesting to me. And I just don't see like a, a recipe anywhere that says that that's how it happens. But if I know you and I go back and I look at like five different things that are in my ecosystem about how I've done anything or how the, the people that teach are on Creative Live have uncovered their stuff, that's how. That is how. And this is why this learning section, again, if you're just joining us, we're with Stephen Collar talking about the art of the impossible, how to find the thing that you're supposed to do and get world-class at it to do things that whether they're capital I impossible that the world cannot survive or they're small I impossible and or or small I impossible that you can do today with this one life. I want you to, to, to take us from learning to creativity because that's the next important step in your book. So the transition is simple. All the learning in the world isn't going to, if you're going after impossible goals, by definition, there's no clear path between where you are and where you want to get to. So learning may feed the engine and fill it, but you still are going to need creative problem solving, creative decision making, creative execution, innovation to go A to B. That's the next step, right? The impossible is always requires creativity. These high hard goals 
always require creativity um, in your approach. And I'm using creativity in the broadest sense of the term here. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, we could stop and list all the like, you know, you want to make more money, you want to be happier, you want to be more successful. Like we could go on and on about why, but we, it's Creative Live. We all know that creativity is the secret sauce, but it has to come after learning. And what's cool about creativity is, as you know, we were not great at training creativity in the 20th century. We kind of sucked at training creativity in the 20th century. In the 21st century, thanks to you know, great advances in psychology, great advances in this kind of work you guys are doing where you've got huge data sets of, of creatives that nobody has access, is nobody's had access to, that kind of stuff. Um, and the neurobiology of creativity, we now know a hell of a lot more about, about it. And you know, we have figured out how it's trainable. We are understanding how it works in the brain. And it's not, being more creative is about it's not as logical as straightforward. Of course, it's creativity. It's a little illogical, and right? Like the way you go at it, but we now understand, here's the neurobiology. Here's how creativity works in the brain. Here's how you state shift to be more creative. Here are the conditions that allow creativity to foster. And the other thing, and this is the thing that I love in my book. Um, it's one of the things I'm, I'm sort of proudest of, even though it's only in there for a little bit, which is there's a section on long haul creativity because right it's not just enough to stimulate creativity more creativity for this or that project we don't want to just be successful for a month or a year we want to be successful and creative over the course of an entire career so long haul creativity creativity over uh, an entire career is a very new subject to science it hasn't been well studied but the book contains some of the you know some of the earliest research and some really fun insights into how do you sustain creativity over time as well this idea of a lifelong, it, again, it marries with, I think, philosophically, one of the reasons that you and I have had, you know, many multi-hour conversations, conversations. Yeah. Is, is because it underscores this, the point that what we're developing is a habit. You know, it is, yeah. it is sort of an orientation. It is a belief system. It is a process that, that you go through rather than some end state. It's not a product. Creativity is not a product. It is a way of operating in the world, I think, to use John Cleese's phrase. Um, tell me why that was something you were most proud of when, when you... Well, you... I, what I liked about the long haul, first of all, the research was really fun. Right. I got to talk to, you know, people like Sir Ken Robinson and, you know, lots of really just smart, our friend, our mutual friend, Tim Ferriss, and, you know, lots of really smart people um, about, about sustaining creativity over time. Um, which I thought was really interesting. And I, um, what I, what I'm proud about it or what I like about it, what I think is important about it is that, <clears throat> for example, many of the core, if you want to sustain creativity over a lifetime, as you know, you're sooner or later going to have to figure out how to get paid for your creativity. And <clears throat> the business of creativity is literally counterproductive to what it takes to be more creative in the world. So like these things are literally at odds with one another and yet creatives have to find a way through it, which is the job of a creative anyways. Right. But it's tricky and counterintuitive and there's a lot of stuff in there. I'll give you a simple example. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if this is an art impossible or something that I teach in flow for writers, but it's relevant uh, nonetheless. So creative careers have, stages 
The first stage of a creative career is making a name for yourself as yourself. That's what you do. And you get known for your ideas, your thing, your whatever. And once you do that, for example, as a writer, I spent my 20s becoming Stephen Kotler, right? Like I was a voice. I had a, you know, I blah, blah. And, but I got to my 20s, I got to my 30s and I had reached the level of, oh, now you get to write for the New York Times. Now you get to write for Wired. Now you get to write for the top publications in the world. You think they gave a fuck about Stephen Kotler? Wired didn't care about Stephen Kotler. They want the best damn Wired story Stephen Kotler can write, but their product is a Wired story. And my ego and my great style and everything that got me there, they could care less about. So you get, you need all this ego to get to the first stage of a creative career. And the second stage of a creative career, you have to be creative inside other people's boxes, often for five to 10 years before you get to burst forth as yourself again, right? That's the apprenticeship portion of, of it. And that means like that whole ego that you spent a decade developing, protecting, nurturing, learning how to be ferocious with, you got to freaking check at the door and park for a while and be somebody, you know, I, I always, the way I put it really, you know, grow harshly is in, with create, if you're a creative, you're always somebody's bitch. There's no way around it because it, when you get to fit where you want to go and you know, this as well as I do, you have an audience. And if you think publish, you know, everybody you got brought you up was demanding, wait till you have an audience. And right, they're very demand and nobody wants to talk about it, but like you're always working for somebody. And which is difficult for creatives because creatives is, I don't want to work for everybody. I want anybody, I want to do my thing. And at every step, there's, you know, there in, in a, there, and I'm not saying you have to play the position, you have to do things in a certain way. You just have to know that this is how it works. And this is what you're going to encounter along the way. So if you don't like it, cool, change it, do something different. But like, this is what happens along the way, no matter who you are. Spoken. Well, Mary Lever, Drew, Radonna, uh, Ed, folks chiming in again from all over the world. We've got Trinidad in the house, lots of other uh, locations around the world. And there's a, a, um, a set of questions that are around the shift from learning to creating. And I want to take that in the concept of, or in the context of your last sort of point here, that this is that, mm. that you, you know, you're, there are a series of frameworks that you're going to go through on your way to, um, doing what some may believe is impossible and that you are on your life journey of demonstrating that not only is it not possible, but watch, but watch me do it. You're going to have to go through several phases. And each of these, this idea of learning and then creating something like you had to learn to write in a way that would attract the attention of the New York Times. And then it was the writing that that the process of honing something, a message so crisply that the New York Times editor was like, yeah, this is good. And then you're then taking that skill that you learned in writing critically and thoughtfully and and uh, and then applying it to another area. So there's this this dance. I'm wondering if you can help mm. talk well, about yeah, this. So there's yeah, there's a couple things worth poking at here, at least um, one. The brain at a very foundational level does pattern recognition. That's what neurons do. They link like with like. 
This is a foundational component of the brain. Creativity, right, It is, depending on what term you want to use, but in the brain, it's a recombinatory process. It's what happens when the brain takes in novel information and connects it to older ideas. The farther flung that older idea is from the novel information, the more unusual the connection, the more creative we tend to often say it is, but um, your brain does this automatically. So you literally, the thing that people are wanting, which is how do I go from what I'm learning to how do I turn it into something interesting in the world? How do I make it creative? That actually is automatic. You don't have to worry about that. In fact, I, one of the things, I'll give, I'll give you an interesting point here. I talk about this in, in the book. It's one of my tips on creativity is experts in particular domains tend to, over time, as they become more and more expert, tend to learn things that are closer and closer related. You study what you're studying and you're trying to learn. You study. And the problem is you need a little gap between what you're learning and your older information to produce dopamine. The bigger the gap, the more reward chemical you get, right? And dopamine is a focusing chemical, a reward chemical, but it also enhances pattern recognition. So when we have dopamine in our system, right, we find more links between things. So that's why creative ideas spiral, by the way, also because when you have an insight, it produces a little dopamine that leads, oh, look, I noticed something else that leads to more dopamine and creative ideas spirals. One by one leads to the next. Well, that go back to my Sunday. Like that's exactly, that's exactly what we're tracing, right? Exactly, exactly what we're tracing. Sorry, keep going. So the process is automatic. Like what starts that stuff, it happens automatically. But if you don't read far stuff that you're curious about, but far, like I work in photography. I'm really, really curious about like, auto mechanics in the 1920s. You don't have to care about how they're going to link together. Your brain does that automatically. You have to learn about cars in the 1920s and learn about photography and your brain will do the rest. Now there are certain things, for example, we talk in the book, I talk about why being in a good mood is super important to creativity from a neurobiological standpoint. There are conditions for creativity. You can curate those conditions, right? For it, but the stuff that you're, tr the bridge that people are trying to build between how do I get from learning to creative decision problem solving, that's actually automatic. And in a sense, get out of your own way and stop being scared that it's not going to happen because that fear is actually blocking the creativity. To put this in a, in a little more context, because it'll make, it'll help people. The more anxiety you feel, the more logical and linear your brain wants to be. This is obvious, right? When there's a big problem in the in, in front of you, your brain goes, oh crap, that's a big problem. Now is not the time for all kinds of creative outside the box solutions. I want something tried, true that I know is going to work because my ass is on the line. You get lot, the extreme example is fight or flight, right? Critical problem in front of you. You get two choices. You can flee or you can, you can freeze or you can fight, right? Three choices. That's extreme version, but every little bit of anxiety produces something close. So we can't, you don't want any anxiety. It's going to block the creativity. So if you're worried about, oh, how do I go from learning to creativity? How do I use this information? You're literally creating anxiety and it's going to block the very thing you're trying to get. You've got to sort of start to understand how, what your brain will do automatically and where you actually want to intervene. Does that make any sense? Oh, it absolutely, it makes perfect sense to me. And I'm, a couple of comments came in that I think are relevant. One from Donald Dazelle. I'm working in a BS accounting to match work experience, but I want to work on building an app, how to balance those two things. 
And then Radonna says, I call this going down a rabbit hole. I got caught, I get caught up in the creativity and the learning. Now I want to, I want to try and take what, what Stephen is saying here, those two comments and saying, Stephen is actually articulating that that is a good thing, that if you can afford to be anywhere besides fight or flight, and when you have and you cultivate some luxury for yourself around the space because you're working a BS accounting job, that should provide financial security, re- eliminate anxiety, and let you do and dream all of yeah. these. What the app be? And and Radana going down a rabbit hole is a really important first step. This 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 tension between uh, between learning and creating and figuring out that you like photography and you like cars from the 1920s. You don't need to understand them right now, but this is the blueprint for how to get where you are, where you are right now to where you want to go. This is the information that you're going to act on over time. And as Stephen just said, you don't actually have to do that work or worry about it. Just keep doing this process. Say what you're going to say. Sorry, but hijacked. Two, no, no. I, one thing uh, I was, I, you made two comments on two different people who commented. One on the, the guy who's working on, in the, uh, on the app. Um, this is like Tim Ferriss's, we, I quote him in the book, right? Like you want, when I was, was coming up as a writer for my first decade as a writer, I was a bartender. It was great. I had, you know, I was making tons of money at the bar and I could afford to go down rabbit holes, by the way, right? Like this, I took my first book took 11 years. I rewrote it from start four times in a row because it wasn't right. I, those were a lot of rabbit holes I went down, you know, along the way and bartending allowed me to do that. So even though the, the one thing may feel a little bit like a prison, it's a prison that liberates, right? And, um, and that's, that's worth a damn. And as far as the rabbit hole, there's another side to her comment. I just want to make sure uh, we're not ignoring this, which is sometimes people are, they have a creative project, a focus, and the, along the way, the tangents get too delicious, right? This happens a lot in flow. You're in flow, you're writing, you're a musician, whatever. And, you know, there's a core thing you're doing, and then there are all these delicious tangents all over the place. And some people can't resist the lure of the tangents when it takes them away from the... And, what I will say on that one is yes, known issue. Over time, you will learn your tendencies and will learn to be able to manage your tangents. You will learn what is a fruitful tangent and what is a waste of your time. But there's no way to learn that without going down the rabbit holes a bunch because everybody's going to be different, right? I can't tell you this is what works for me and tangent. You know what I mean? Like this is a good tangent. This is a bad tangent. But I will tell you, you you're, you'll figure it out over time. It won't become this. It starts out as it's an endless rabbit hole, endless time suck, endless. Of course it is. But you, as your brain starts to accrue knowledge, right, expertise, you, the rabbit hole, you know what I mean? You start to be able to navigate. This is sort of what expertise is. Radonna just chimed back and she said, this is exactly what I need. Uh, I'm, I'm learning to trust the process 100%. And I, I, yeah, and Ramona, you're going to, especially in flow, if you're getting into flow in the beginning, this is one of the things, um, known issue at the Flow Research Collective, we train people to get into flow, we train them to use the flow states creatively, you're going to have a lot of, you're going to waste some time in the beginning, there's no, like known issue, because of this dopamine, because of this pattern recognition gets amplified in flow, it gets amplified by creativity, and the, we have swag at the Flow Research Collective that says never trust the dopamine. 
Um, and what we mean by that is it feels, because dopamine feels so good, every idea feels like a great one. And you're gonna right, and you're gonna go march down those those rabbit holes. Um, on the back end of a flow state, there's a recovery phase, by the way, where there's no more feel-good neurochemistry. And for creatives, this is a really good time. You don't want to do work in recovery because you want to recover, but it's a really. I always read what I wrote the day. If I was in big flow, I'll read what I wrote in recovery, and I'll just circle everything I don't like. I won't try to do the work because I'm too tired to do the work. I'll just circle what I don't like. And the reason is I've got no more feel-good neurochemistry for a little bit of time. There's a refractory period where my body is building it up again. So if I like what I produced in flow when I'm not in flow, pretty good chance that it was good because I've got no more actual feel-good drugs. So it's probably actually good. And it's a use, I think, I think that's a useful thing, whether or not we evolved in this way, we can still use it in this way. And I find that's useful. Hopefully that helps answer that question. Amazing. And we're getting a lot of folks in the comments saying, thank you, buying the book, um, which reminds me again, we're with Steven Kotler here for his. Yeah, guys, go to Amazon because yeah, go to Amazon and buy as many goddamn copies as you possibly can because trying to publish a book in COVID, like all the publishing is broken and they accidentally overprinted like 40,000 copies. So I now have to sell an extra, extra 40,000 copies. So help me out, people. Buy a lot. <laughs> Amazing. But this is, you know, this community shows up and it purchases books from authors that are have filtered through this process. And they know that what no, we bring I, to the I, show yeah. is, is quality. And we know this is Steve's No, I'm, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. You. The book, I'm, I'm joking. The book swept the bestseller list. We hit 10 bestseller lists last weekend. So I've never done that before. So people are showing up. And you guys have always showed up for me. Hey, and I think the... Um, where are we? There's a comment here. Uh, I wish I'd, I wish I'd seen this five years ago. Um, yeah. is, is LB, is LB. Um, Donald says, thanks. It was one of the questions, just buying it right now. Thank you. So again, we're going to show up for you, Steven. And I want to, I want to wrap with, uh, one last concept. Again, this is is imprinted deeply in the book, and so much of what we've talked about around, um, you know, understanding passion, learning, connecting learning to creating, um, but specifically, if there's this concept in the book about the habit of of your potential, like how do you get in the habit of living up to your potential, and and as a send off, so that we're again, hyper connected to the work that you've just done in your new, new book. Give us, give us, uh, something to pull on with respect to how to make this, this is, it's, it's possible to create this habit around living up to your potential. This is an idea that's old. It's William James's original idea, the founder of modern psychology. And he basically said, most people have what he called the habit of infuriating. They're not in the habit of living up to their full potential. So they're not used to living up to their full potential at a really simple level, really basic. Uh, the way I always like to explain this is I always like to say that 35 years of studying the moments in time that impossible has become possible has taught me a couple things. The first is that we are all capable of so much more than we know. That's what I've learned in 30 years is that human 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 capability is enormous the problem is human capability and potential is invisible 
to everyone, to, to everyone, but especially to ourselves. Our potential is invisible to ourselves. Our, what we're capable of is invisible to ourselves. And the reason is we can only, capability is an emergent property. It emerges when we push in our skills, when we use our skills sort of the utmost again and again and again and again. Um, that's sort of all that's required to put it in different terms. I, I My best friend and I talk about this all the time, which is, one of the dirty secrets in peak performance is there's no secret. It is nothing fancier than showing up every day. Like as a writer, I am going to show up. I'm going to write a thousand words every day. I am not going to care how they, I feel about the words. And I'm, by the way, not even going to judge the words. A victory for me is I wrote the thousand words. Some days they're great. Some days they freaking suck. But if you write a thousand words a day, you end up writing about a book a year and you end up doing what you started this conversation with when you were like, how the fuck did you write 12 books or 13? I think it's 13. By the way, I don't even know. I think it's 13. 12 that are out and I have a 13th that's coming out in November, but it's already written. So, um, but yeah, I mean, like it, you literally, there's no secret secret. And the one thing I always want to tell people because they don't get this and it's hard to wrap your head around. If you survive being a teenager, you have probably felt the worst that life can produce for you. We know this because we have things called emotional set points that say, hey, by the time you're like 10 or 11, this is the worst you're going to feel on the planet. This is the best you're going to feel. And your whole life is going to take place in between. Those are established. And if you're a teenager, you have no emotional control and your hormones are raging. So you already got the worst of it. Now, you may get the worst of it every single, like it may show up day after day after day after day. That may be in your future, but you've already suffered through the thing that you're afraid of. Right. Like whatever it is that you're afraid of experiencing, you've already felt it. It's already happened emotionally in you. You're tough enough to do this is point A already. If you've made it into adulthood, you're probably tough enough to do this already. You've already borne the pain. You can do it. Like literally you've already done it. So stop freaking out about that one. And the second, you know, the second half about it, it really is like by the end of the art impossible. Yeah, there's a bunch of onboarding stuff, the passion recipe and those kinds of things, but it's about six things to do every day and seven things to do every week. I would guess of those six things, if you're listening, you know, if you're involved with Creative Live, you're probably doing a bunch of them already, right? Because the biology is a limited cell set. My point, the thing I'm trying to leave us all with is we don't know what we're capable of. We're capable of more than we know. We get there by pushing on our skills in a very specific way every day, but that's all you have to do. You just have to show up for yourself and do the work and not care about the outcome every day over and over and over. And sooner or later, those impossible start falling down. You just start knocking them down. It's and if you do it, do it in an area you care about, that's what's going to give you that energy. Extra and lift. Yeah, this, yeah. The, the comments are going nuts. Uh, Skeeter is asking if the book is available on audio. Yes. Is yes. The answer. Sarah it says, I'm raising teens now. Thank you so much. I'm going to use that. Eric is like, Oh, wait, let me tell, let me, I got, I, I, I want to talk about one thing because I love this with teenagers. So, cause everybody had this experience. People hear like small I impossible that, which we believe is impossible for us. And even that stuff seems really freaking intimidating to people. And I want to point out that chances are now there may be an exception here, but the first small I, most of us, go out and solve 
is we're like 10, 11, 12, 13, and we want that first boyfriend or girlfriend or first kiss or first relationship, right? And it's an impossible, right? You're 11, 12 years old. I would have given you my right arm for like my, telling me how to get a date with a girl. Like, I swear to God, you could have had years of my life in trade at that moment for all I, it is a small eye impossible. And everybody here has already ticked that box already. So I, it's worth appreciating that we've done a lot of this stuff already. We don't tend to trust our history on this craziness, but we've got real history here where we're like, oh shit, you did that already. I just want to point that out. I'm sorry, it was a random tangent, but I she said no, that we've already experienced that and now we just have to put it on on uh, on repeat and get make it actionable and repeatable. And that's what again your book, The Art of the Impossible. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being on the show. Uh raise the roof for Stephen in the comments. Thank you so much, buddy. And Go get them. We're huge fans of yours here at Creative Live. You have an excellent class on Creative Live uh, on, on Creative Live about flow. Um, that's another good resource to check out. It is a great good, resource. Good. Good luck doing what you're doing. Keep it up. Uh, again, comments. That was incredible. Thank you. Been working on a huge projects. Book ordered. Granddaughter that I just sent. That I just had sent twenty books now. Twenty books too. So that's a. There we go. That's amazing. LB Donald. Okay. Thank you so much for being on the show, bud. Signing off for those of you out there in the world. Uh, make sure to pay attention to Stephen and his work. Dear friend, uh, friend of the family, friend of Creative Lives. And I can't wait to see you again soon in person, my man. Hopefully in the soon. not too distance. God, it's been too long. It's been too long. All right. Signing off. Uh, until next time. Peace, everybody. Thanks for hanging out. We bid you adieu. All right, that is a wrap. But before you go, hey, I wanted to say thank you so much. And I do note that many of you have asked how you can help me out there in the world and I have a great answer for that and it is sharing this show um, my goal is I create this content with a, with a talented hardworking crew over here at Creative Live and our goal is to get this information out there into the world help the, the greatest creators and, and entrepreneurs of our time get their ideas spread far and wide so you sharing your takeaways or just links to the show any of the podcast platforms or whatever means the world to me thing two how you can help if you care is to leave a review at your preferred podcast platform that also helps surface uh, this show the guests uh, in in search results on each of the platforms and it means a lot so thank you so much really really grateful and i'll look forward to seeing in the next episode hopefully soon maybe next maybe right after this maybe you're gonna listen anyway Whenever you get around to it, I'm here. Thank you.